Is anybody here scared of the dark? What about this? Was anybody, when they were a child, they were really scared of the dark? Maybe some of you. I notice my daughter does that. When I come here to the church, sometimes late at night, I walk around in the church and I don't bother to turn any lights on. And if one of the kids is with me, they stay real close by. Because sometimes it can be a little creepy in a church at night for some reason, in the dark. Um, our youth, I think, went to Scaremare a few weeks ago, which is kind of like a haunted house. And I heard some of them were just clinging to one another in the dark, deathly afraid of what, even though they knew it was put on, it was still something really scary. This morning in our passage, we see the brutal punishment of Jesus carried out. He was crucified by men, which is terrible and scary in itself. But even, even more terrifying, he was forsaken by God. And that's scarier than any, any dark place all by yourself or in a haunted house by yourself. Jesus had all his friends leave him and forsake him. And then the Heavenly Father forsook him. He was all alone to endure this punishment all by himself. This is the, the pinnacle of what Jesus came to earth to do. He came to die. As we celebrate Christmas, just a little over a month from now, we will be celebrating His birth. But we must remember Jesus was born in order to do this, in order to fulfill His mission of dying on the cross for sinners like us. Jesus is crucified by men, forsaken by God, and then buried. Let's look at our passage together, beginning in verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place, place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. 
In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, excuse me. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Last week we saw Jesus was unfairly treated, mocked, beaten, scourged. After he was scourged by the Roman soldiers, he was led to a place called Golgotha. The common practice of criminals who were being crucified was for them, after they were beaten, to carry their own cross, to carry the cross beam through the city, through the crowds, through the streets, and just outside of the city gates where they would be crucified. Sometimes, however, the the criminal was so badly beaten, so weak, so exhausted, that he wouldn't be able to carry the cross for himself. And this was the case for Jesus. He had been beaten so badly, he didn't have the strength to carry this cross beam. So the guards made a bystander, a stranger, Simon, do it for him. Mark says they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. This was actually a small act of kindness. In the midst of all this brutality, this small act of kindness, giving him this mixture which would have dulled the pain a little bit, which would have taken the edge off of the agony. And yet notice Jesus refused to take it. He wasn't willing to get the anesthesia so it wouldn't hurt so bad. He was willing to take the full pain, the full punishment, the full experience, although he knew it would be absolutely horrible. We get very little detail of the crucifixion itself. Mark simply says, and they crucified him. Now, it would have been so well known by his readers, there was no need to go through all the details of what happened. Not only was it painful, it was also humiliating. There was, first of all, the the walking through the city streets with your own cross. The criminal also was stripped of his clothes. Sometimes he was stripped completely naked, and other times he was allowed to keep just his loincloth. Then they would take his hands, or actually his wrists, and either tie them to the crossbar or nail them, as in the case of Jesus, right through the wrist bone. Then they would lift the crossbar up and affix it to the upright wooden beam that was already in the ground. The victim would usually die from blood loss or suffocation. And if the criminal wasn't dead within a certain amount of time, the guards would come and break the lower part of their legs so that they might die more quickly. All this would be done very publicly for all to see, for all to see what would happen to anyone who rose up against the Roman government. Excruciatingly painful and very humiliating. This is what Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world went through. It was in this way that Jesus was crucified. And the sign above his head let every know, every, everyone know what his crime was. King of the Jews. His crime was 
supposedly, usurping the authority of the Roman government. There were two who were crucified beside him. We often consider these men to be thieves. And that's probably part of their crime. But if we think about what their punishment was, crucifixion, and if we think about the word Mark uses, rebels, which can refer to revolutionaries, it's more likely that these men were a part of the uprising we saw a few weeks ago in our text. The uprising against the Roman government, which included Barabbas. If this was the case, then all three of these men would have been seen by the Romans as committing the same crime and worthy of this terrible, painful, torturous death. But Jesus was different. Maybe the other two were mocked as well, but Mark only tells us about how Jesus was mocked. Those who passed by hurled insults at Him. They shook their heads and shouted up to Him, Come down from the cross and save yourself. And the chief priests too, the, the Jewish leaders, who handed Jesus over to Pilate, also mocked Him and smugly said to one another, He who is going to destroy the temple. He saved others. He can't save Himself. Let Him come down from the cross and show us who He is. Then we'll believe. And even those who were beside them, Mark tells us, on their own crosses, insulted Him. Now there's a lot we could say about this whole event. The unfairness, the brutality, the mocking, but I want us to consider one thing here that may escape our minds. Even here in the midst of all this, Satan is working. And you say, well, of course Satan's working. Jesus is being crucified and punished. But Satan is working here to thwart God's plan. Look a little more closely. Think about what the people are saying to Him. What the Jewish leaders are saying as Jesus is hanging on the cross. If you remember, there was someone else who tried to get Jesus to prove who He was. Way, way back in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Satan was there in the wilderness tempting Jesus. He said, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the highest point of the temple. Satan was saying, prove to me and to everyone here who you are, that you are the Son of God and they will believe you. You will establish your kingdom on earth without any pain, without any suffering, without any trial. And here, Satan, through the voices of these strangers and these Jewish leaders, is giving Jesus the same temptation. Come down off the cross. If you are the King of the Jews, if you are the Son of God, prove to us who you are and we will believe you. We will bow down before you as King. Satan knew and we all know that Jesus could have done that, right? Jesus could have come down from the cross, right? You may remember the story in the Old Testament about a man named Samson. He was a Hebrew of the people of God and he was strong. Especially, uh, there was something supernatural about when he grew his hair long. God would give him supernatural strength. Samson was like a real-life version of the Incredible Hulk. And he had a temper like him, too. One day, Samson was captured by the Philistines, his enemies. They had tried so long to catch him, but he was always too strong, too mighty to catch. But Samson's enemies captured him. They went to their temple to praise their gods for their fortune. We've captured our enemy, finally. And they mocked Samson. 
The scripture tells us they brought him in to perform for them. We don't know exactly what he did. We can imagine, though, maybe them treating him with ridicule, chained to pillars of the temple, one slapping him here. Remember, he was blind. Another one beating him over the head here as he stumbled back and forth. I can imagine them saying, you're not so tough now, are you, Samson? What happened to all your strength? Why don't you take us all out now if you're so tough? And Samson prayed to the Lord for strength. Do you remember what he did? He pushed the two support pillars of the temple down and the whole building collapsed and killed thousands of Philistines. God's people were triumphant. Samson, even though he gave his own life, killed his enemies. We like that kind of story. The good guy comes back from unimaginable odds to defeat the enemy. The bad guy gets it in the end. The good guy wins. In the movies, the underdog seems always wins. We like that kind of story. Luke Skywalker defeats the evil Darth Vader. Kung Fu Panda somehow defeats Tai Lung and saves the day. A few small hobbits destroy Sauron and his magical ring. Rocky Balboa takes the it takes the ring with a huge Russian boxer and somehow comes out the winner. We love those stories. We want the good guy, the underdog, to win, to show the bad guy what he's really made of. And if we could have our way, Jesus would have flexed and broken the wooden crossbar in two. Isn't that kind of what we want? They're telling him, come down, Jesus. And we want him to win. He would have ripped the cross from its roots and used it to defeat all of those who mocked him. We would cheer him on. Come on, Jesus, get him. Don't let him treat you like that. In the midst of the mocking and the punishment and the suffering, Jesus just hangs there. He says nothing in response. Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he stop them? And the answer he, is that he had a greater purpose than vengeance. Samson destroyed himself along with thousands of others, but Jesus allowed himself to be destroyed so that others could be saved. As Jesus himself said in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wouldn't fall for the temptation of Satan. He wouldn't disobey his Father despite the mockings and the cursing of everyone standing around. But let's, note, let's take note that not only was Jesus mocked and cursed by people when he was crucified, he was also cursed by God. Jesus was crucified by men and he was forsaken by God. In verse 33, Mark tells us something really eerie happened. Darkness came over the whole land for about three hours. Right in the middle of the day. Wouldn't that be creepy? When you know something weird is going on? In the Old Testament story of the Exodus, the plague of darkness against the Egyptians was a sign that the curse of God rested upon them. And the curse of God was resting upon Jesus here at His crucifixion. At 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some mistook this for Jesus calling out to Elijah, the old prophet. Some ran and Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, something to prolong his life. They wanted to see what he was about to do. They were curious. 
about whether or not something was going to happen. But everything else that happened was completely invisible from human eyes. The Old Testament scripture says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And sure enough, Jesus was hanging from a tree. And he was cursed by God. In Galatians, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what's going on when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Finally, this torturous treatment, this brutality is over. Jesus has died. Mark tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was to symbolize how Jesus had opened the way for all people, not just Jews, not just the religious, not just those who were socially acceptable. He had opened the, the way for all people to come into the presence of God. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Mark tells us about a few people who were watching Jesus' death. There was a soldier, a centurion, maybe one who had participated or overseen the mocking, brutality, beating of Jesus. When he saw how he had died, he said, surely this was the Son of God. The reason he seems to say this is because of how Jesus died. You see that in verse 39. When he saw how he had died, one Bible scholar says this, the strength, with which, the strength which he possessed at the moment of death was so unusual, the centurion spontaneously acknowledged Jesus' transcendent dignity. In Mark's account, the reason for the exclamation is unmistakably the manner of Jesus' death rather than any accompanying event. There were also the women who were watching him from a distance. Mary, Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and others. Women who had cared for Jesus. Who had provided for his needs during his earthly life. Imagine their sorrow. Their pain at seeing their loved one suffering in such a horrible way. But again, what they saw, what all the people saw was only the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus was going through. What was happening spiritually was even more horrifying than what everyone could plainly see. Jesus offered himself to bear the judgment of God upon human rebellion. Now on the cross, he who had lived wholly for the Father experienced the full alienation from God. His cry expresses the profound horror of separation from God. Friends, this is the horrible truth about our sin. Maybe if you've, you've thought of sin as a small thing. Yeah, yeah, I sin, but everybody sins. We all do bad stuff. Yeah, I sin, but I'm no worse than anybody else. But the truth about our sin is much worse than we would ever care to think. We are much worse sinners than we could have ever thought. Do you believe that? That you are a worse sinner than you realize? That you are a worse sinner than you could have ever thought about yourself? Your sin against the holy God and the creator of the universe has qualified you 
for eternal death and punishment in hell. That should, that should give us a little perspective about how bad our sin is. About how we have sinned against God. Because of your sin, God would be right and just to send you straight to hell. No second chances. Straight to hell. The Bible teaches that's where every single one of us belongs because of our crimes against God. Have you realized this about yourself? Have you realized this about your sin? Are you sorry for your sin? Have you ever come to a point where you, you were just broken hearted? Not because you got caught, not because someone else saw that you did it, but because you realized you sinned against your Creator. Or does it really not matter all that much to you? I pray the Holy Spirit would prick your heart, prick all of our hearts in such a way to convict you that you would turn away from your sin. That you would realize your great offense against God and decide that something has to change. Because if something doesn't change, we'll be on a crash course with which leads to eternal punishment. But friend, there's also hope. There's hope because of what we've just read about Jesus. That He was crucified and cursed by God. You see, Jesus was punished by God so that His people could escape punishment. He was cursed by God so that His people would be blessed. He was forsaken by God so that His people could be accepted by God. Jesus was a substitute. A sacrificial substitute for ugly, nasty, filthy sinners like us. Now what He requires of you is repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn away from your sins. To leave them behind. Leave the life you've been living. He calls for a radical change. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Devote your life to serving Him. Repentance and faith. Faith means that you believe in and trust Jesus Christ to save you. It means that you believe who He said He was, that He was the Son of God and Messiah of the world. It means you, you believe that He died on the cross for sinners. It means that you trust in Him to save you. That you look at the cross and you see your salvation. That, that you believe that if it depended on you and on any way to, to attain heaven, you wouldn't have a chance. But to lean upon, to rely upon Jesus Christ and His work for you. This will take courage to turn from your sins. To turn from your old life. It will take humility to admit that you've been wrong all of these years. But make no mistake about it, this is the most important message you've ever heard or ever will hurt here don't leave here today without considering where you stand with God and what your hope is that he will accept you is it in yourself or in anything that you have done or can do or is it in Jesus alone Jesus was crucified by men he was forsaken by God and finally we see in the last six verses of our passage Jesus was buried it was on Friday Jesus had died. That's why we call the Friday before Easter Good Friday. Mark tells us that a man named Joseph, 
a member of the Sanhedrin, interestingly enough, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, boldly went before Pilate and asked for Jesus' body so that he might bury him before the Sabbath. Jesus bought, uh, Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped him in the linen, and placed him in a tomb cut out of rock. He rolled the stone against the tomb. Mark very straightforwardly states the facts of what happened after Jesus' death. He tells the story of how Jesus was buried. But we should notice Mark's repetition of the word dead and died. You can't exactly get the sense of this from the NIV, but listen to the verses 44 to 45 from the ESV. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he gave the corpse to Joseph. What is Mark stressing here? What does Mark want us to know about Jesus at this point? Say it. He's dead. He's really and truly dead. The Savior, the Messiah, is dead. His heart wasn't beating. He had no pulse. He wasn't breathing. There was no brain function. Jesus was completely dead. And this is significant to us for a couple of reasons. It's significant to us for what's to follow in a couple of days. The resurrection. You see, if Jesus was really dead, there's no way to explain why he wasn't dead three days later. The only way you can explain it is by making something up or saying it was a supernatural event. It was a miracle performed by God. The only thing you can say is that it was all true. If he rose from the dead after being flatlined, everything he had said, everything he had done, every bit of it is absolutely true. How sad the women must have been, though. They didn't realize yet what was going to happen. How sad they must have been to see their leader, their Messiah, dead and laid in a tomb. But one day soon they would rejoice, as we'll see tonight. They will rejoice because He came back from the dead. And it's my prayer that you rejoice too when you think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the greatest story that's ever been told. It's worth telling again and again. It's worth hearing again and again. It's worth believing. And it's worth giving your life for. I know you've heard this story over and over again. And I pray it doesn't get old to you. How can this story get old? Let's not let it get old. This is the good news of the gospel, which is for unbelievers that they might repent and believe and be saved. And it's for us believers that we might be renewed again and again by coming back to the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. That we would come back to the message of grace and forgiveness through Jesus given for us. This is the means of our salvation. This is our hope and joy in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of a trial-filled world. And this is the part of the sermon where many times I give you a challenge or, or show you how the Scripture applies to your life. I hope you can already see 
how this applies to everyone's life in the whole world. But for this morning, I just want us to soak in the wonderful message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. We're often told what we must do, what we must do, what we must do to be accepted by this person or that person or by that business or this business. What must we do to be accepted? But here, our application this morning is don't do anything. Just rest in the wonderful news of the Savior who was given for you. Rest in the grace that is given in Jesus Christ. He was broken for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. What wonderful grace He has given us. Undeserved mercy. Undeserved grace. Life and freedom in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You as broken individuals. Individuals going through trials and temptations. Baggage from years gone by. Sins that are even ongoing now. Lord, mend us by Your grace. Remind us again of the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave His life for sinners like us. And in light of that grace, we pray that You would help us to live in gratitude. That we would come again and again to the throne of grace that we might find help and mercy in our time of need. Minister to us by Your Word, by the gospel, that we would realize just how much you have loved us in sending Jesus. Remind us, Lord, show us of the ugliness of our sin that we might hate it just as much as you do. Father, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.